last time. Remember in Isaiah, I think it's 51, there the first couple of verses, it tells us to look to the hole from whence we are digged and to look to Abraham and to Sarah. Uh, He was the father of the faithful. I've said that several times and I may say it a few more times because uh, he is one of the primary ones in the Bible that God tells us to look to. And what he did, how he lived, how he handled his problems and the difficulties of his day uh, gives us a lot of insight and uh, wisdom and understanding how we need to handle the things of this day. But down to chapter 16, it said, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. I want to stop just for a moment there and do a little bit of a flashback because the story of Abram started out in chapter 11, end of the chapter. It gives Abram's lineage, verse 29, Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. First time she's mentioned, I mentioned she's barren. Now, that is a highly emotional issue. Women were created and made to have children, to love their children, to produce and to be fruitful. God created their minds and their emotions to work that way. One of their primary jobs in creation was to have children. He told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And in Abram's day, that had not yet been done. And as I've said before, probably the only thing God ever told us to do, we finally accomplished. We've overpopulated the earth. But that wasn't because of what God had said, that's just because of what people do. But realize that this was a big issue in those days, much bigger than today. There are women today in our society who choose not to have children. They'd rather have a career, uh, they're self-centered and just want to live their life and not be bothered with children or whatever the situation may be that leads them to come to that decision. But it's unnatural, and it's not what God intended from the beginning. But in those days, there was a huge stigma involved, far more than there is today. If a woman decides today to pursue a career and either not to marry or if she marries, not to have children, that's okay with society, isn't it? You can make those life choices without criticism today in our world. It's just not a problem. Now, you may have a grandmother or somebody who just doesn't think that's right. But society as a whole doesn't care. Then they did. They cared very, very deeply. And probably the most shameful, the most embarrassing thing that could happen to a woman was to be barren, not to be able to produce children for her husband, for herself, and family. 
And God mentions this right off. Now one of the things I want to point out is God could have fixed this just like that. He could have easily fixed it. In fact, there are times in the Bible when he did fix it. Even in the story of Abraham, or Abram, and Sarai, when Abimelech the king decided that she was a good-looking woman and he wanted her. You know, things aren't, weren't then like they are today. If you were a king, and you had a kingdom, anything in that kingdom was yours. Anything you wanted was yours. All you had to say is, I want that woman, and she was yours. That's the way it worked among the kings. We see that a little bit in a group of people who are under fire from the government right at the moment, who decide what they want, and it doesn't matter if a girl's 13, 14, 15, she marries whomsoever she is told to. And it seems unfair and unright to us in this society. And indeed, I think that it is wrong. And I'm not saying that the kings back then were right either. But that's the way it was. That's why Abram feared for his very life when Pharaoh said, that's a pretty girl, I want her. Because he was afraid he would die so that he could have what he wanted. That's the way the kings operated. I want us to take a little more, perhaps, of a human look at Abraham and Sarai today. You know, when you read about biblical characters, sometimes they're bigger than life, aren't they? We read about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, about Noah, about David, about, well, maybe not David, because there's a lot in there that shows you how human he was. But we read about Peter and James and John and Paul, and even though the Bible shows a little of their personality difficulties and quirks and so on, we tend to put them on a pedestal as being super spiritual, and indeed that's probably true compared to us. God did chose the weak and the base, for the most part, to serve his people, I mean to serve him, in order to show how great he is. So we're no great shakes. So it's easy for us to look at these pages and think, those people didn't have to deal with what I have to deal with. Don't we have our own sets of problems? Don't we have our difficulties? Don't we feel vulnerable and weak and small and pitiful and poor? Yes, we do. And we should, because that's what we are. Now, we're not supposed to stay this way, but that's what we are. And it's easy to say, well, yeah, but that was Abraham. What about me? I have difficulties. I have issues in life. They can be all kinds of issues. How do I deal with them? I laid some background to show that Abram and Sarai's life 
was not a bed of roses. Well, maybe it was. It had some blossoms, but it had lots and lots of thorns. How many thorns does a rose bush have compared to roses? Quite a few. Now, they started this marriage, I'm sure, with high hopes. You know, he was, I'd say, roughly 35. They married a little later then because they tended to live a little longer. She probably was at least 25 because she was 10 years younger than he was, according to the story here. He might have been 40 and she might have been 30. But nonetheless, they got married, and I'm sure they wanted children. I'm sure they wanted to have a happy marriage with maybe not a wooden house with a picket fence, but a nice big tent anyway, and to have it full of little children running around. But right from the get-go, it became apparent that she could not get pregnant. I'm sure they tried all they could, did everything they could to try to make sure she could have children. Nothing worked. She was plain barren. As I said, God could have fixed it. When Pharaoh took her, wasn't that the story? Was it Abimelech, one of them? Uh, God cursed, I think that was Abimelech, cursed his household, closed all the wombs. Now, these are women that had been productive, but now they couldn't. This thing may have played out over a period of time. I don't think it was just an overnight deal. Because how would you know overnight whether the wombs had been shut or not? I don't know how long she stayed there. And it became apparent to the man that all the wombs of the household had been shut up, but there must have been enough of them that some of them were due to get pregnant and nothing was happening. Otherwise, it wouldn't be part of the story. And then they began to realize it was the curse of having Sarah there. Nobody had touched her, but... After she went back to Abram, the wombs were opened, and the women started getting pregnant again. So God turned things on, he turned them off, turned them back on, can't he? He's God. He has intervened in the lives of people in the past. Now, I think we'll see in this story that God really loved Abram. He really loved Sarai. He cared about them very deeply. Well, why didn't he fix this little thing so she could have babies? By the time they left and went where God said to go, he was 75 and she was 65. Now, if they had married when he was 35, that means 40 long years they had been trying to have a baby. Couldn't get it done. How many times had they prayed to God? And it seemingly went no higher than the ceiling. How many times had she laid in bed at night, maybe with her husband sleeping, sobbing and crying? because nothing happened. 
How many times did they argue and fight over the situation? How many times did they just get discouraged with one another? Abraham was a man, or Abram at the time, was a cattleman. And a cattleman knows that some bulls are prolific. Some bulls have a very high sperm count, and there's no problem with the cows. But he must have known. If there were women barren back then, I'm sure there were bulls that couldn't perform either. He knew from breeding cattle that some bulls just weren't much count. Now, they didn't have sperm tests back then like they do in the hospitals today to get a count to see if you're capable or not. Didn't do it. So there were big questions raised about who's responsible here because he hadn't taken other women. He didn't have other wives at this point like others did. So there was no way really to assess for sure why she wasn't getting pregnant. Was it because she had a problem physically or was it because he did physically? So... Don't you think somewhere along the line the blame game started? And it must be you, not me. Now girls, you know how guys are. How many men would like to admit that they couldn't sire children? What would that do to their macho image? What would it do to their self-esteem? There could be great emotional difficulties over a situation like this, couldn't there? And no one knowing for sure who's really at fault. How many times over the years? Maybe she ran in and said, Abraham, Abraham, listen, hey, hey, stop that, listen, I'm a day late. Oh no. Forget it. How many times did she think maybe? And no, didn't happen. Now let's throw some scripture into here to show where God was in the situation. Now we, we can imagine maybe where two human beings would be who desperately wanted children. Let's go down to chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Eternal had said to Abram, Get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless him that bless you and curse him that curses you, and in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now this was when they had not yet left and gone to Canaan. God himself, or Christ, Melchizedek, appeared to Abram and said, I'm going to make a great nation of you. What does that mean? That means you're going to have children, and they'll have grandchildren, and grandchildren, and grandchildren, and you're going to become a great nation. 
Well, he already knew Sarah couldn't get pregnant. And here was God coming in the flesh to say, I'm going to make of you a great nation. So, Abram did as God had said and moved. Left family, heart and hearts and everything behind and moved. Did this make life easy? Let's go on down to chapter 13. Here drop down to about verse 14. Here's the second encounter with God. The Eternal said to Abram, after the lot was separated from him, Lift up now your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, to you will I give it, and to your seed forever. And I will make your seed as the dust of the earth. So many children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, you can't count them. So that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall your seed also be numbered. Second time God has come face to face with Abram and told him this. Now this is probably years later. Do you think Abram's beginning to think, yeah, I've kind of heard that story before, but my wife's still not pregnant. At what point would you and I have begun to doubt? But, you know, that's twice he's come and told me that. Nothing's happened. We've been doing our level best. Nothing's happening. When would you give up? When would you say, you know, God doesn't really know what's going on here. He's missing something. We're doing our part. Nothing's happening. How long do we give God to do what he says he will do? Do we put him on a schedule of when we'll be healed? when we'll be blessed, when we'll have children, whatever the question at the moment is, how much limit do we as human beings put on Almighty God? Maybe we're waiting for the end of the age. Maybe we have someone say, I think the tribulation will start in 1972. That was prior to 72. And the Christ will return at trumpets in 75. This is 2008, last time I looked. <laughs> He's not back yet. How many interim dates have been set in the meantime? How many predictions have been made? I hear there's a man that's in Jerusalem right now who claims to be one of the two witnesses and that he would hear the first trumpet and he'd be the only one to hear it and that the Pope would be given special powers on the 17th of April. This is the 19th. I haven't heard of the Pope doing anything special. He had Mass this morning and 
Catholic Church in New York. This man claims that, I guess, he and his wife are the two witnesses. I don't know what you do with Revelation 11 says these two prophets, but maybe that bad translation could be prophet and prophetess. I don't know. <laughs> what do we got going on? Now, do I want to see this age wind up soon? I'd love to. Have I read the prophecies and heard the sermons for 55 years or more now and see nothing happen? When will I give up? When will you give up? Where do you limit God? Do we believe that he knows what he's doing? Do we believe that down to the very core of our souls? That God knows what he's doing? Or do we second guess him? How long do you give him? What date have you set? When do you say, I've had all I can take, I give up? When do you say the Lord delays his coming? As some, he predicts, will do. The Lord delays his coming, forget it. I'll just go out and do what I want to do. There, he's talking about individuals there. He's talking about individuals who will say, I can't take it anymore, I give up. I'll just do my thing till I die. You know, if there weren't a danger of that, he wouldn't have warned about it. What did he say about iniquity waxing great and the love of many would wax cold? He said that would happen too. And I've seen it here and there throughout the church with people I know. I have known. How much do you and I limit God? Fulfill your promises now. I'll give you until 2 o'clock or tomorrow night or next year. Now, should we live in hope? Yeah. Should we have works? Yes. But when should we give up? Abram and Sarai never gave up. They still were doing good works. They were still trying. They were still hoping. But they weren't seeing anything happen. I'm sure at times they began to get a little discouraged or frustrated and say, you know, God's come twice. Haven't seen anything yet. Let's move on. Chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Eternal came to Abram in a vision. It didn't appear face to face this time, but a vision. This is the third episode now. Saying, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. 
Now what if you had a vision and God had appeared to you face to face twice and says you're going to have children like the dust of the earth and you have this vision and God says, I'm your exceeding great reward. And he said, what reward? What are you talking about? When would the attitude begin to deteriorate a little bit and you begin to say, hey, wait a minute now. I haven't seen any reward. And Abram said, Eternal God, what will you give me? Did he have a moment here where he said, wait a minute. Yeah, he did. He did. What will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? I've got a Gentile here as my closest heir. I don't have any children. You're my great reward. What are you giving me? Father of the faithful. And he had a moment of despair, even right at and in, perhaps, a vision from Almighty God. He was perplexed and frustrated and didn't know quite how to handle it. Now, did he go on to become the father of the faithful? Yes, he did. No doubt about it. I'm not trying to criticize the man here. I'm trying to tell you he was a man. And even though his life turned out great in the long run, he had his moments. He had his moments where it was tough to believe God, didn't he? It was tough to wait. It was tough to hope and keep going when he could see nothing. What is faith? Faith is the substance of things not seen. The evidence of things you can't see. I didn't quote that exactly right, but you know what I'm talking about in Hebrews 11. Can't see the answer is when it means something. Behold, the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars. We're not going to talk about the dust the sand of the sea now. Let's look at the stars this time. All right, okay, let's look up here. I don't see... You know, I don't see any kids, but if you say so, I'll go look at the stars. If you be able to number them, and he said to him, so shall your seed be. Now, I'm told that you can only count with the naked eye about 2,000 stars, but it seems to me like there's millions up there. Just It doesn't look like 2,000 to me. I read that somewhere. I don't know if it's true or not. Verse 6. And he believed in the eternal. He had a moment there where he said, <laughs> you know, I'm having, this one's tough to swallow, Lord. I'm having trouble with this one. Is this Gentile going to be the one you're talking about? Now let's go out and look at the stars, Abraham. And he told him, your seed are going to be like these stars. So Abraham said, okay, I believe you. He did. He believed it. 
He believed in the eternal, and he counted it to him for righteousness. He had seen no evidence. He had seen no blessing. He had seen no great reward. But he believed God. And God counted that as righteousness. Now, what does God want us to be? What does he tell the end-time church in Isaiah 52? Put on the garments of righteousness. He wants us to be righteous, to trust him, to believe in him, to do the things that he says, simply believing without sometimes even seeing evidence. And that's how he gets to know that he can trust us. Now, he has never done any wrong. He has fulfilled every promise that he ever made up to now. And I believe he is going to fulfill a lot of promises that he made that have not been up till now because it simply hasn't been the time. But God wants to count you and me as righteous. And you know what? On our own, how much does our righteousness amount to? Used menstrual cloths is what he says our righteousness amounts to, literally translated from the Hebrew. Not worth a whole lot. He tells us in Isaiah 54, it will be his righteousness, not ours. But did he test Abram? Year after year after year after year with nothing happening. No blessing, no great reward. Nothing. Now, we'll see a little later he had silver and gold and cattle. He was a wealthy man. But the thing that mattered the most to Abram and to Sarai, nothing. What matters the most to us? You know, God knows us real well. He knows our minds. He ponders our hearts. And God knows where your buttons and mine are. He knows what are the most important things to each one of us. Now, we all being human, those will overlap among us in a group. But each of us has a little bit different set of buttons. And you know what? God isn't going to push your fourth button. He's going to push your first button. Maybe your second button. But their first button was children. That's where it stopped. If your first button is money, that may be where you're tried. If your first button is marriage and you're not and want to be, that may be where you're tried the most. God knows where you live. He knows what makes you tick or not tick. He knows where you'll have the most trouble believing him. 
So why would he work on an issue that was fourth or fifth or sixth down the line with you? He's going to work on the most important areas where you have the most trouble. And you know who else is? Satan the devil. He also, though confused, frustrated, upside down, selfish and full of ego and vanity, is relatively intelligent far more than we are. And he knows how to push our buttons too. Who are we going to respond to? They're still waiting. Let's go on to 15, verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. This was not just a nice vision. This was a nightmare, a horror of great darkness. And he said to Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. So he said, not only are you going to have children, but they're going to go into slavery. So this great feeling of darkness and horror was over what would befall his seed for four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And you shall go to your fathers in peace, though you shall be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation, that means his children and grandchildren, they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces, the sacrifices he'd made earlier, in the same day, the Eternal made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed have I given inheritance. Not only did he come in person, by vision, and by dream, but now he made an everlasting covenant. An absolute covenant. Total promise. In those days, and it doesn't use it here, it may have happened, I don't know, it doesn't say. But when you made a solemn oath with someone that you would fulfill or else, there was a way the deal was sealed. You have heard in this country how years ago you could make a handshake deal and count on it. Now you can have 14 lawyers make up 93 contracts and you can't count on any of it. But it did used to be. They were honorable, honest people, and if you shook hands with them, a deal was a deal. And a man would keep that deal if it hurt him. Even if he had nothing to go to court with, he would honor it because he was honorable. They didn't shake hands in those days. 
When you made that kind of covenant, you took them by the testicles. That's the way men did it. And you swore on your testicles that this would be the case. That's where we get the word testimony, testify, because you swore on your own organs that your word would be good. King James didn't like to talk like this, and it kind of makes people uncomfortable. So when the King James translated, they said he put his hand on his thigh. Sure. We don't, we don't give thiety in court. <laughs> that isn't where it came from. King James tried to hide a lot of things that were Victorian and prudish, and they didn't even admit human anatomy. People say, well, what about the kids here in this? Hey, if the kids are old enough to hear it, they'll hear it. If they're not old enough to hear it, it'll go right over their head. And if they're 13, they're already ahead of me anyway, so don't worry about it. But God is quite plain. So God upped the ante, didn't he? He made an absolute covenant with it. This is the way it's going to be. All right. Where did I... Oh, I finished that section. Formalized it. Now let's go back to chapter 16, where we started in the first place. But I wanted to go back and show you how many times God promised or guaranteed or let it be known in a vision or a dream or by a covenant, this will happen. And then still nothing happened. This went on for year after year, decade after decade. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Wasn't an Israelite, wasn't part of the family. She was an Egyptian. And this was Sarah's servant. Now at this time, Sarah was getting pretty old, and Abram was getting pretty old. He was 86, maybe 85 when this happened. When the baby was born, he was 86. That would have made her 75, 76, Sarah. Now, they'd been working at this for some, at least 40 years, maybe longer at this point. And nothing had happened. Now, Sarai was laying there thinking, well, my husband and I have been married all these years, and I'm getting pretty old, and I'm getting into menopause now, and he's getting kind of iffy too. So, you know, God promised this, but... I don't know exactly how he meant to fulfill it. Maybe he had in mind for me to do something a little different, or Abram to do something a little different. Now, this marriage had been unusual in that day because there was polygamy around everywhere. 
and Pharaoh and Abimelech and all these different people had more wives. But for whatever reasons, maybe Abram understood some of God's original intent from Adam and Eve. He certainly did about tithing. He did about the Sabbath. He did about various things. Know God's intent. So maybe they just had a close enough relationship that he had never said, Sarai, you know, maybe we ought to have a few more wives in the house. What do you think of that? And she'd have probably said about the same thing my wife did. You can have two more wives, go find yourself, or you can have two wives, go find yourself two more. Because I'm gone. So, I'm sure, being a human being, and going 40 years without children, that might have crossed his mind. Do you think? God told me to have children, and she can't do it. I think I better look maybe to another possibility. Think that ever went through his mind? Nah. Did hers. <laughs> you know, the woman's usually the one that objects to deals like this. Right? Well, after this many years, she finally said, Abram, you know, I don't know quite how to say this, but behold now. <laughs> the Eternal has restrained me from bearing. I can't get pregnant no matter what we try. I pray you, go in to my maid. Now, her maid was probably considerably younger than her. She was menopausal by this time. And Hagar obviously wasn't. So she was probably considerably younger. It may be that I may obtain children by her. You, you, need, you need to go see Hagar tonight. Now, how hard would that be for a lot of women to say? That would be a tough one, wouldn't it? How many of you would say that? Just got to take a short poll here. I, I, I see no hands. You're, you're a very unresponsive audience today. And Abram listened. Uh, a lot of women think their husbands don't listen much, but sometimes they hear. <laughs> He's probably thinking, is this Sarai? Hey, hey, hello, it's dark in here. They don't have electric light. Turn on the light. Is, who, who are you? What's going on here? Is this my wife saying this? Can't believe it. They said, well, honey, if you insist. <laughs> or maybe he had really hurt feelings. Maybe he said, well, you know, honey, I really love you, and I wouldn't want to take another woman. You really think this is the way God would have us do this? I don't know what the byplay was. Don't know what their attitudes were. I'll bet, though, 
that she wrestled with this for months and maybe years before she could say, Honey, I think you ought to go sleep with Hagar tonight. I don't think that came overnight. This was probably a very, very traumatic, emotional situation. He'd probably thought about it off and on, but he hadn't breathed a word. These were human beings. Now why would God try these people this hard and this long if they were supernatural beings? They were very human. And God needed to know and know that he knew. So he made this long and very difficult. But whatever, whenever they had this talk and finally got through it, he did as his wife said. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. Now, she didn't say, this is a one-night stand, maybe I can have a child through her, and since this is convoluted thinking, anyhow, you know, since she's my maid, then the baby will count as mine. But when you're desperate, human brains and emotions can come up with some strange solutions, can't they? I can count it as mine, even though it's through her. She didn't even say, well, she can be your concubine from now on. She offered Hagar as his second wife. Now, she had a sense of honor, and I suppose she wanted this thing to be legal, not just fornication, but it was legal then to take more than one wife. So that's the solution she came up with. wasn't illegal, but it was emotionally difficult. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw, that is Sarai, that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. As much as she had thought this through and decided, this is probably what God intended, it's the only way I know to go, God hasn't done anything, I guess I should, so I'll give him Hagar. But the minute Hagar got pregnant, Sarah was livid. She was so angry, so upset, and so frustrated, Now let's remember here as we get into this story that she turned out to be the woman that God tells us to look to as Christians in the end time in the New Testament. But she was very human. And jealousy and envy and hate were things she had to learn to deal with. It wasn't easy. He was despised in her eyes. And Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. Now who brought this up in the first place? She said, 
I was wrong, but it's your fault, you dirty old man. Or words to that effect. <laughs> Shifting of blame. If you just hadn't listened to me, Abram, Women spend a lot of their lives wanting their husband to listen to them, and then when they listen, they say, why'd you listen to me? <laughs> Sometimes you just can't win. Honey, I did what you said. She was upset. My wrong be upon you. I have given my maid into your bosom, and when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. Oh, this, uh, no, this was, I'm sorry, this was Hagar who despised Sarah. But Sarah still had a problem here. And she blamed her wrong on Abram. So he was getting it from both barrels. And Sarah, Sarah was, Sarah, I was getting it from Hagar. Yeah, you tried all those years, you couldn't have a baby. He came and slept with me one night and I got one. Fool on you. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your hand. <laughs> he says, I'm out on this one. <laughs> this is between you girls. You've got to settle this. She's your maid. She's not mine. Do to her as it pleases you. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. This didn't turn out the way Sarai had wanted and she scared Hagar so bad she ran. The angel of the eternal found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to shore. Now God's still dealing with this family, isn't he? Now here's Hagar, who's sitting there. She's been cleaning house, and sweeping out the tent, you know, and doing all the stuff that a maid would do. And Sarai had come to her and said, you know, I've been barren all these years, and it's so shameful, and I think if you'll go in, she had to have set the deal up with Hagar ahead of time, wouldn't she? Wouldn't you think? Abram's going to come in behind your thin wall tonight. I mean, it might have really surprised Hagar if he'd have come stumbling in in the middle of the night with no forewarning. So I'm sure Sarai had talked to Hagar ahead of time and says, it's all right with you, it's all right with me. These, these things can be kind of delicate, you know. Because normally speaking, if a wife had found a husband in with the maid, the lid would have come off. So even Hagar had to have been thinking, I'm not real sure here, you know. If this happens, what's going to happen? So there had to have been warning ahead of time, I think. And she had agreed. And then Sarai had gone to Abram, and he agreed. So the deal had been set up, and then it happened. And then when she got pregnant, probably right away, uh, she despised Sarai. That's the way it goes with these things. God allowed polygamy for a while, but the fruits of it weren't too hot. <laughs> and they weren't in this family. But understand, God was with this family. He was with Abram, he was with Sarai, 
And now it turns out he was also with Hagar. Because she was really the one wrong here. She hadn't pursued Abram, apparently. This had all come from Sarai. So she had been wrong. Sarai had told her, it's okay, Hagar, don't worry about it. I want a baby, and the only way I'm going to get it is through you. Do this for me. Please, do this for me. Okay, Sarai, I'm your maid, I'm your slave, whatever you say, I'll do. Boy, it turned around on her. And she had a nasty attitude. But God was there. I think that's important for us to understand. Sometimes God is there, brethren, but we don't know what's going on. And we may find ourselves in the middle of a mess. But that doesn't necessarily mean God isn't there, does it? Not by this example. The angel of the eternal found her by a fountain, and he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where'd you come from? And where are you going to go? What are you going to do? How are you going to handle this? And she said, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just leaving. She came down so hard on me, I'm out of there. I don't know what to do. I'm putting some words in, but I want us to capture the the feeling and the emotion here of what was going on. This isn't just a, a story. There are human feelings and emotions involved. The angel of the eternal said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. What would your initial reaction under these circumstances have been? Hey, wait a minute now. She just threw a sword of my husband's at me. She hit me with a rolling pin. She cussed me out. Well, maybe she didn't cuss her. I don't know what she did. But she dealt very meanly, nastily with her. Cat fight. You tell me to go back there? I'd rather sit out here and die. The angel of the eternal said to her, well, he had to convince her. He had to tell her a reason. He had to tell her something positive. Because I suspect that her attitude would have been, uh-uh, don't want any of this. The angel of the eternal said to her, I will multiply your seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Now he's giving Hagar the same promises he'd given Abram. The angel of the eternal said to her, Behold, you are with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael. The word in Hebrew means God shall hear. Because the eternal has heard your affliction. And he will be a wild man. His hand will be against every man, and every man's hand against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Now where do we have a contingency of twelve tribes of Ishmael, basically known as Arabs and Muslims today, who are wild men? And his hand is against everybody. Did this come true, or did it not? But it hadn't when this message was being delivered. We read a lot of promises in the Bible, don't we? 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, New Testament. A lot of promises. Do you believe them? If you do, it will be counted to you as righteousness. Is God trying the church to see who will believe and continue to believe and who will not? There could only be one answer to that, the mess we've got today. He is. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He uses the same methods because they work on people now as they did then. We're in good company. But it's easy for us to get fixated on our own problems and our own wants and our own desires and forget that God is indeed in charge. He is in charge. He knows precisely what he is doing. And he knows with absolute timing when he plans to do certain things, no matter what we think. His timing is impeccable. It is perfect. We'll see that in the story. And she called the name of the Eternal that spoke to her. You, God, see me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that sees me? Wherefore, the well was called Beer Leharoi, or the well of him that lives and sees. She said, Here I was sitting, alone and brokenhearted, kicked out, no way to make a living, not knowing where to go, and God saw me, and God came, and God helped me. So that's what she named the well where she sat. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. So now he's 86. <laughs> That's an interesting year. People get 86 out of bars. And uh, maybe he kind of felt 86 here by the circumstance. I don't know. Now, 13 more years go by. 13 more years. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, went from 86 to 99, the Eternal appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be you perfect or mature or right. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, or high father is what it means, but your name shall be Abraham, a father of great multitudes. Not just an important man, not just a high father, but a father of many nations, or multitudes. For a father of many nations have I made you. <laughs> he didn't see him. He didn't have any grandchildren, apparently. No, he couldn't have. Ishmael would have only been 13 at this point. Still, 
Nothing to show except one son by a handmaid. Well, a wife at that point. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you. Don't you think by now Abraham might have begun thinking, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. <laughs> come on already. How's this going to happen? I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. Is God our God today? Same God that was a God of Abraham? I believe so. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land wherein you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I believe with my whole heart we are the seed of Abraham. I believe the land where he was standing that day was given to him and to us forevermore as a possession. And there's only one question then to ask. Where are we? Where we are, if we are the children of Abraham, is the promised land where Abraham stood and walked. Our God is not God, and the Bible is not the Bible. This is as plain and straightforward as you can possibly get. There's not a translation problem here. There's not any double talk here. The land where you are, I will give you and your seed forever. That is why we are in North America today. It is the promised land given to Abraham and to his seed forever. How many times does he say that? Now we've seen how many times he appeared to Abram and said, you're going to have kids, you're going to have kids, you're going to have kids, you're going to have kids. Uh, yeah, right, okay. Uh, I heard that. He also said to him over and over and over again, the land where you are I will give to your seed forevermore. Both those promises made over and over and over again. Now, do we believe God? Do we believe these plain statements of God? If so, it will be counted as righteousness. The truth will be known, probably before very long. The land he gave him is a land we are inhabiting, then God is our God. I will be their God, he says in the verse 8. They'll be in this land, Abram, or Abraham now, and I will be their God. Who is our God and where are we? God said to Abraham, You shall keep my covenant, therefore you and your seed after you in their generations. Still promising seed in their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. So uh, God went to the south end of the body again where the problems had been all along. 
Now maybe Abram, by this time, 13 years later, had accepted that maybe Ishmael would be the way God was going to go, and that Ishmael would be great nations, and that Ishmael would have that land. Now there's another point to make here. Where is Ishmael today? Where are the children of the Egyptian Hagar today? Where are the Arabs? They are in the Middle East. Now the promise of land was not, as we shall see, given to Ishmael, but through Isaac. So he said, Isaac will have the land, and I will be Isaac's God. Ishmael will have other gods and they'll have other land because they can't have the land that I promised by covenant to Ishmael, I mean to Isaac. The plot thickens, doesn't it? If you haven't done your homework, you better figure out where the Arabs are today and where the true Israelites are. Now maybe we've got it all backward. Maybe we're the Arabs, and maybe those people over there are the seed of Jacob. Can you swallow that one? I can't. I think those are Arabs over there. I think we're Israelites here. I think we're the seed of Isaac, and they're the seed of Ishmael. And I think the land that God promised through Isaac... We own. And that wild ass of a man, as he calls him another place, lives over there. That makes this the promised land of Isaac, and that the promised land of Ishmael. Yeah. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. From that time on, if you want to know who an Israelite was, you just had to drop your drawers. You claim to be an Israelite? Let's see. <laughs> now Ishmael was also circumcised, and those Arabs over there have continued the rite of circumcision today. And it has been continued in Israel. And most babies that are born in this nation today are circumcised. That's one of the signs that was given. Now, it didn't need to be done. Once the New Testament came and the Spirit of God was there and the church was there, circumcision of the heart became the one important thing and circumcision on the south end was not any longer necessary. And they had a big conference about that in Jerusalem, remember? And decided that that was the case. And here was a 40, 50, 60-year-old Gentile coming into the church. And some of the apostles thought they ought to get him down and circumcise him. And the Gentiles said, wait a minute, let's think about this. <laughs> and... Some of the apostles says, yeah, I think you're right. We ought to think about this. So they had a big conference. They decided, no, not necessary. Circumcision of the heart is what counts now. 
anyway. That'll be a token of the covenant. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you every man-child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought without mon- with money of any stranger, which is not of your seed. Even your servants that you take from somewhere else, if you buy slaves, they've got to be circumcised when they come in. He that is born in your house and he that is bought with money must needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. You don't see circumcision practiced in Asia. You don't see it practiced in Africa much. You see it practiced between the Arabs and the Israelites on a worldwide basis. The uncircumcised man, child, whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be or princess in Hebrew. And I will bless her and give you a son also of her. And she shall be a mother of nations, kings of people shall be of her. And Abraham just lost it. (laughs) He couldn't handle it. He laughed. He said, come on, you know, you're pushing it, God. (laughs) I, I, I can't handle this. (laughs) This is too funny. Bill Cosby got hold of Noah. I wonder what he'd have done with this story. Abraham fell. He rolled in the aisles. He fell on his face and laughed, laughing out loud, and said said in his heart, Shall a child be born to him that is a hundred years old, and shall Sarah that is ninety year old bear? This was just too, too funny. He'd, he'd cozied up to the idea ever since Isham wasn't born 13 years ago that this was the way God had chosen to do it, even though it was a little, uh, wasn't mainstream, but he figured God must have decided that was the way it was going to be. So now he's 100 years old and his wife's 90. She doesn't even have hot flashes anymore. She's all done with that stuff. Finished, complete. Never more, never again. And him? Nah. (laughs) No. They'd probably even maybe given up on the idea at this point. It says in Hebrews 11, he was dead. Dead fish. Nothing, nothing there. Nothing. None. Wouldn't you laugh? Maybe they'd even quit trying. Because she was past it, and he simply couldn't. You know, after so many nights of honey, no response. You know, how many years of that do you go before you say, I think I'll just go to sleep. It's it's, it's over, done, finished. (laughs) That would be funny, wouldn't it? Shall a child be born to us? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And in his heart he said, this will never happen. Don't, are you making a mistake? Let's talk about Ishmael, can we? God said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son indeed. Are you listening, Abraham? I didn't stutter. I said, Sarah will have a son. Do you hear me? 
and you shall call his name Isaac. God not only said you're going to have a son, I've even got a name for him. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with him, with his seed, after him. That's with us, we're his seed. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Yeah, I, I heard that too. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. That's happened, hasn't it? Well, we don't need faith for that. All we've got to do is look over there, and there they are, running around by the millions, all over the earth. Billions of them, actually. Well, maybe they're not all Arabs. Some have converted to the Muslim religion. But there's still a lot of Arabs over there. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear to you at this set time in the next year. God even set a time when Isaac will be born. I'm not only going to tell you she's going to have a son, his name's going to be Isaac, and he's going to be born on a specific date. Now this sort of boils it down, doesn't it? No more empty promises. No more someday, sometime, maybe. God set a specific time. Now, he does that with us. There are scriptures, and I'm not going there, we've read them before, which say it will come on the appointed day, the appointed time, that it will happen suddenly. It says God will, or Christ will come suddenly to his church. These things that are about to happen... God has precise dates for. He knows exactly what he has in mind. I don't think Abraham and Sarah did. No. Exactly. So he makes a point. This set time in the next year, and he left off talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day as God had said to him. And Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Now, I don't think probably God told him it'll be nine months from today because I don't think they started that day, not right after the circumcision. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the selfsame day was Abraham circumcised and Ishmael, his son, and all the men of his house, born in the house, and bought with money of the stranger, were circumcised with him. Um, well, it's getting close to 2 o'clock. Let's stop right there. We're right in the middle of this story, and, and I hate not to finish it, but uh, there is another day. So I think we'll stop there at the beginning of chapter 18. But let's understand that we're dealing with human beings here who have feelings, who had emotions, who had lives to live, who had hopes, who had dreams. And God made promises, and they, he did not give them all the details. He didn't tell them exactly when. He didn't tell them where or how. He just told them this is the way it's going to be. And then they were left. Think about it. 
pray about it, do their best to make things happen, uh, maybe even get a little strange in their approach because they didn't quite know how to handle what God had set before them. I think that gives us an awful lot to think about that right there without finishing the whole story today. The God has called us out of this world, weak, small, human, emotional as we are, and he's told us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Emotion is not enough. We have to have the truth as well, and we have to live by the truth. Emotion is important. These people had emotions, but they also had to live God's way. And God had to find out if they would live that way before he gave them that which they so much desired. So we too are being tried and tested to see if we're the kind of people God wants to entrust with ruling the entire world. That's a weighty decision he has to make. Is our heart really there? Is it emotional, Protestant, I love you? Or is it God's love that translates into obedience to every word of God? You can't have God's love without obedience to his word. That's just the way God has it set up. Obedience without emotion can be pretty stale and dry, but emotion without obedience is futile. And we need to consider that. And those are the things that God was considering with Abraham and with Sarah. So let's stop there for today and continue later.